What did the wise men say after offering up their gifts of frankincense and gold? Anybody know? But wait, there's myrrh. And a dad joke for you. Sorry, can't help it. I'm trying to do some Christmas jokes. It's hard to find good Christmas jokes this time of year. I don't know why. All right, well, back when I was a student at Harding University, if someone had told me back then that our football team would win a national championship one day, I would have said, when pigs fly. Well, yesterday, Harding University's football team won a national championship. So when you head out the door today, you might want to look up. <laughs> Unbelievable. They are the division, NCAA Division II National Champions. Who would have thunk it? Yes, he does. One of the wonderful things I got out of it, though, was usually when you watch ball games and they talk to the coach afterward, and, you know, and they all say all this stuff that you always hear. I don't remember ever hearing scripture quoted. And when the hardest coach was asked there today what was going through his mind after he just won the national championship, instead of saying he was going to Disney World, this is what he said. Now to him who is able to exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a glorious moment I thought that was. I couldn't have been prouder. I don't know the man. I don't know if he's a wonderful Christian man. I don't know anything about him. But what a great moment to speak about our Savior, to speak about his life as a Christian. All right, let's be opening up to Mark chapter 12, and we'll continue our study today. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. <clears throat> then... Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying, he left no offspring. Second took her and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures, nor the power of God? For whom they rise from the dead. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, that, that they rise, you have not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Is he not the God of the dead, but the God of the living? You are therefore greatly mistaken. All right. Well, here we have some more guys in the temple. Jesus is there on Tuesday of the last week. The Pharisees and the Herodians had their shot at him, couldn't catch him. Now we have the Sadducees coming in. Of course, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They taught there is no resurrection, and they thought they had an unanswerable argument that they were going to give to Jesus to catch him, to try him, to get him to say something that they could put him away with. Ah, but they were dealing with the Son of God. What does he say to them? He answers them and says, you think that's a dilemma, but you do not know the Scriptures. Here these guys are supposed to be some religious bigwigs, right? 
They don't know the scripture. He tells them, do you not know the power of God that spoke to Moses in the burning bush? He's, he's, he's the God of the dead and the living. He can raise them up. He has the power. There is a resurrection. And in that resurrection, there is no giving in marriage. There are no marital relations. Jesus taught us the resurrection. And he said some things about it. Not just here in Mark chapter 12, but in John 5, John talked about it. He wrote about it. He says, the good and evil will come forth. Jesus assures those who believe that there will be raised on the last day. His apostles preached this resurrection from the dead. In fact, let's turn over to Acts chapter 4 and read something real quick. <clears throat> Acts chapter 4 and just see what uh, Peter and John had to say about it. Now, first, uh, Acts chapter 4 verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. You see, Peter and John were preaching a resurrection of the dead. People were hearing this and believing. Believing so much that 5,000 were added in a single day. It's a glorious thing, isn't it? To know that we can have that hope of eternal life. Jesus said, I will give you eternal life. It's a promise, something we can look forward to. Paul asserted it to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> he also asserted it to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4. Our brother John Ivers has been talking about 1 Thessalonians on Wednesday nights, if you've been here. And he's been talking about that resurrection from the dead and when that's going to happen what's going to happen and when it's going to be. So, unless you actually question the authority of Jesus Christ and the apostles, unless you don't really truly believe it, that they have the power to, to state, make statements about God, then you have to believe that the Sadducees were very mistaken and that it was very wrong for them to asking this question. They should know better, right? They should know better than that. Paul emphasizes also, and Luke, Paul emphasizes also the power of God. Jesus was saying, basically, with God, nothing is impossible. If he can raise Jesus from the dead, he can certainly raise us up too, right? I mean, what a wonderful thing to look forward to, right? He's also going to raise us all up. There is certain universality about it when you're talking about it in John 5. In fact, let's turn over there and see what was said in John chapter 5. Found verses 28 and 29. He says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. All will be raised, not just those who are believers, but those who are unbelievers, those who are evildoers, those who died in their sins will be raised, believers to a resurrection of life, unbelievers to a resurrection of condemnation. Paul also taught this, Acts 24, resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He said in 1 Corinthians, for as in Adam all die, even in Christ 
all shall be made alive. But there's going to be a time when this is going to occur, referred to as the last day when the Lord comes. John 6, Jesus speaks again and again of raising the dead at the last day. Paul wrote of it uh, when Jesus comes again to deliver those, to deliver the kingdom to the Father, having destroyed his last enemy, death, right? He later says it will occur at the last trumpet. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15. There are some groups that have a doctrine of resurrection that's a little um, different than what I believe and I'm sure what most of you believe. They are what we call premillennialists, right? Premillennialists and others that teach there will be more than just one resurrection, right? All premillennials teach at least two resurrections. And if you don't know what a premillennial is, that's a person that believes that Christ is going to come and going to set up a kingdom here on earth. Uh, the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. You'll reign on earth for a thousand years. And then there will be another resurrection. But scripture doesn't really point to that as far as I can tell. In fact, I can't see but one resurrection mentioned here. Those of the dead and, the and those who are alive. Those who are believers and those who are non-believers. Bible presents the resurrection as one last day. At the last trumpet. So it's hard for me to see Jesus coming and having a reign for a thousand years and then another resurrection that occurs. In fact, passages that most of those folks offer do not necessarily teach what it says. One of those they use is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which Brother John Iverson just went over this past Wednesday. They talk about the resurrection of those who are believers before uh, the, the thousand-year reign when Christ returns. But it doesn't mean that those who are non-believers are not going to be raised at the same time. And then they get a lot of stuff from Revelation that they try to take the figurative language of Revelation, the apocalyptic language, and turn that into literal prophecy. Doesn't necessarily match up with some of the other verses that we read. Now, we studied this in the past. We actually had a whole series of lessons on the end times, right, and what other people believe and so forth. There's also going to be a resurrection body that's going to occur for the righteous and the unrighteous. This will be our physical bodies, but changed forever. If you will, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's see what Paul wrote about this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. <clears throat> he says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. First man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. In other words, we will have a resurrection body, whatever that is. It will be like Christ was after he was raised again, that kind of body, whatever that is. And it's going to be incorruptible. It's going to be glorious. It's not going to be able to be uh, corrupted. It's not going to have sin, no sorrow. What a wonderful thing to look forward to, right? But also those who are raised that are unbelievers will be changed as well. We will be conformed to a glorious body of our Lord. That which is lowly will be transformed to that which is glorious. How? As Jesus mentioned to the Sadducees here, by the power of God. The resurrection body of the wicked, not much is actually said about that, but they will be raised. Most understand the body of the wicked um, will be capable of eternal suffering. Not annihilated, like some would say. Not destroyed, but will be able to feel the lake of fire. Be able to suffer eternally with Satan and his cohorts. Something to keep in mind, something that Jesus talked about, the apostles, it's real. The world wants to tell you otherwise, right? There's no hell. There's no heaven. It's just this, like the Sadducees, right? Jesus said, you are sadly mistaken. Moving on. Chapter 12 there, Mark, verse 28. Then one of the scribes came. And having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, well, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared questioning all right he silenced the pharisees he silenced the herodians he silenced the sadducees now we got a scribe I'm gonna ask one last question which is the first commandment of the law jesus replies by offering two great commandments right which which the scribe says you have answered he's agreeing with he's answered with grace and wisdom and Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. You remember the rich young ruler? How he talked about he had kept the commandments. He understood the law. But his heart was not there. His heart was with his money, with his material possessions. He's saying similar thing to the scribe here. The scribe is just saying what is right, what is true. And in a moment, we're going to talk about the scribes and the way they lived their lives. They weren't quite there. 
First, though, what is this command? What, what is it about this command? That we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind. Well, first and foremost, the Israelites were expected to do that. Did you know that? We talk a lot about the law. We talk a lot about the commands. But in Deuteronomy 6, that very statement is made, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. We read it in Matthew 22 and also in Luke. We're to love the Lord God, and on this hangs all the law and the prophets. Love God with our whole being. Not like some who serve God kind of emotionally, right? Get real riled up, but they don't have much basis to go on, right? You see that in the world, right? We say that a lot. A lot of folks are rallied up by emotion, but they don't have that basis of faith. A lot of folks will understand things intellectually, but just have no emotion whatsoever. No zeal, no desire to do anything, to serve. I mean, the second command says, love your neighbor as yourself. First is God, then your neighbor. Upon that hang all the law and the prophets. Talked about that a lot. Jesus said in John 14, 13, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's where it all begins from. That's where it starts. That's really the crux of the matter, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Is that apply to us today, really? Does God expect the same thing that he expected of the Israelites? Yes. We see it over and over again. That love that moves us, 1 John 4. We are to ask God to help us grow in love, 2 Thessalonians 3. We are to pray and grow in love when he answers by keeping the word of God. We should love him even more than the Israelites did. Because he died for us, right? There's no greater love than a man laid down his life for his brother. And fully applied, it fulfills what you might understand as the law. Five of the Ten Commandments refer to working no ill towards your fellow man or your brother, right? If one truly loves his neighbor, he will not do those things that are mentioned in the Ten Commandments. Jesus taught us to well of one another. He gave us a new command, John 13, right? To love one another. And as we love one another, they will know who you are. They will know you're Christians. Experience when we keep the commandments. We'll demonstrate our true love for one another by obeying the commands. It's not just obeying the commands, though. It's not just keeping the rules. It's loving him with everything you got. That's where it comes from. This is how we know we truly love God when we show our love for one another. Not just by claiming it, not just by going around and acting like it, but doing things to show our love for him. I know we've talked about that a lot. That's easy to talk about, maybe not so easy to practice. But as we grow spiritually, we understand what that means. We understand how we are to sacrifice ourselves. Right? To serve. He came to serve, not to be served. Well, moving on, he is now uh, basically 
destroyed any argument that the, church, the religious leaders could bring to him. This was Tuesday of that week is what I'll call the religious leader day. You know, that, that's when he, they kept coming at him and he kept knocking them down. Uh, they need to make a movie about that one day. That'd be awesome. He's now teaching in the temple, continuing, and he has to say, and he goes on to say something that's kind of going to blow their minds, right? Continuing on there in chapter 12. He says in verse 35, Then Jesus answered and said, <clears throat> while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. He's blowing their mind. Those religious leaders know this. It's the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament, Psalm 110. In fact, let's go over there and read it. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your beauty. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your mouth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Jesus confounds these guys. They've been attacking him. He's been answering them with answers they never dreamed of. And now he's giving them a question. How is it that the son of David can be the Lord of David at the same time? They don't know. They have no clue. What does that mean? <clears throat> well, while the Pharisees could not answer, we have the benefit of the completed revelation of Scripture, right? We can understand how the Christ could be both David's son and David's Lord and how Jesus proved to be both. According to prophecy, as he was prophesied by David, uh, he's mentioned by the prophets in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, as being the ruler, the one to come. And the common expectation of the Jews was that Christ would be a descendant of David. But they thought he was going to be king on earth. Jesus is the descendant of David. If you read Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy that Matthew describes, he lists Jesus coming through Joseph's side, who was actually not his real father, but his stepfather, through David and Solomon. So he has the royal descendancy there. He's also mentioned in Luke through Mary's side, who was his real mother, from David through Nathan, his other son. So it's proved both ways. Isn't it interesting how God made sure we knew that? And two separate Gospels, those are the Synoptic Gospels. We have two genealogies that come through two different people to prove that he was the descendant of David. Jesus' question was not to cast doubt on Christ as David's son, but it served to stir up his critics, for they did not comprehend how David's son could also be David's Lord. 
Christ is David's son by lineage. He's David's Lord because of his eternal deity and his present reign. According to prophecy, we just read that in Psalm 110. It's also prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 9. Christ would be a son, a mighty God, everlasting father, and then over government, would no, reign over government with no end. Micah 5, 2, he's prophesied to Micah that Christ born in Bethlehem would be to rule, who would be from everlasting. The Old Testament prophecy declared his kingship and deity. Jesus referred to himself as the son of God in John 5. God called Jesus his son in Matthew 3. Peter confessed, his, confessed him as the son of God in Mark 16. Angel Gabriel spoke of Jesus as the son of God in Luke 1. John the Baptist testified that Jesus is the Son of God in John 1, 34. Nathaniel, Martha, John confessed him as the Son of God in John. Also, we know from John 1 that he existed beforehand. Remember? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then verse 14, and he became flesh. It's also taught by the apostles Paul and Philippians, and as claimed by Jesus himself in John 5. Jesus is the King of Kings. He has all authority in heaven and earth. Matthew 28, 18, he's been given it. He now reigns in heaven at the right hand of the God. And that judgment is going to come on that day, right? And he's going to turn over all authority, deliver all the saints to God. And that great day, we're going to see that victory over death. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Well, they ended up accusing him of stuff that was not true anyway, right? Yeah, I was going to, yeah, that, that's absolutely crazy. He was talking about how if the apostles didn't, you know, if it wasn't true, why would they suffer like they did? And we know Paul talked about all the things he's been through. So, yeah, it makes sense. For something that they're not going to get for years later. Yeah, the world, we have an instant satisfaction, right? Instant gratification today. Why would they do it then? They knew the promise was, was made to them and their families and their descendants. Teaching on in the temple on that Tuesday, he continues to talk about the leaders. And reading on there in, verse, chapter, in chapter 12, uh, let's continue on verse 38. Then he said to them in his teaching, and I love this because they're hearing it, <laughs> beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, 
who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. You think you have a problem with these guys? <laughs> Jesus was very compassionate. He loves all, right? And he loved these men too. He's God. These men were created by him. But he understands their hearts are in the wrong place. And they're going to be condemned for it. First, because of their unbelief. And because they know better. They should understand who he is. He then is going to address the practice of these scribes, of these leaders, which also was referred to as the Pharisees in Matthew 23. And he talks about the pretentious leaders, the self-important, the, those that made to look or sound important, right? And these were guys that went around wearing long robes, uh, they had what was called a full-length prayer shawl with tassels on four corners in contrast to the colorful uh, common Jewish dress. It was made of wool or linen, and these were blanket-like mantles that they would wear as they went around. They were known as talents, and they distinguished the rabbis and the scholars as men of wealth and eminence. They loved the attention those robes brought them. They loved to hear people address them as rabbi or teacher. They wanted that respect as their leaders. They wanted the best seats in the synagogue. These would be seats along the walls of the synagogue or at the dice at the front. Kind of like here. Hmm. They wanted the best places at the feasts. Banquet seating was always either by age or importance. He goes on to talk about something else, too, how they devoured the widow's houses. <laughs> they embezzled funds set up for the widows. They were freeloaders on the widow's hospitality. They mismanaged estates and wills for the widows. These guys were pretty awful people, and Jesus knew it. And he's telling them, beware. I love the way he talks about how they like to have the long prayers. Do you, ever, do you ever see anybody have a long prayer here? I'm not calling anybody out, but yeah, it happens every once in a while. We too have to be careful of this, right? That we're not doing something just so we can feel important, just so we can show how religious we are, show how our powerful and great we are right remember Jesus came to serve we have pretentious scribes today absolutely ministers today are often elevated you'll, you'll see that on like a TV preacher a lot right people just worship them now, I don't think that goes on here in fact I would say it doesn't go on here and I'm pretty sure Kyle was asked that question, he would say, nope, I don't want anybody worshiping me, I'm just a man. And that's the way it should be. But it does occur. Ever seen one of these guys on TV and all of them are sitting up there on the stage, you know, and their nice big suits and 
Yeah. It happens. I would dare say that the elders here, every one of them would tell you that they're not doing what they're doing for themselves. Now, I can't get in a person's mind. I've seen from their actions. I know them. I've been part of that group for a while. That every one of them would be serving as an humble servant, trying to be like Christ, just like you should be, just like everyone in here should be. But do you do things for show? Is your faith so shallow that the reason you come here is so you can get up and be praised? That's what he's getting at here. <clears throat> We've got to be careful of that. The words of Jesus should serve as a warning, not just to these religious leaders, not just to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, but to all of us. Here he is in the temple. He had to clean it out on Monday to get all the money changers out of there who were making profit in God's house. Tuesday, he comes back to talk to the leaders who are all a bunch of hypocrites. You remember John the Baptist calling them vipers. He'd give you a lot of talk, no action. The whole point of this, in my opinion, is to show we are to be humble. We are to be lowly servants, and he will provide. The apostles are going to go on to say, you got to give your life to him. You've got to turn it over. You've got to be less and give him more prominence in your life. That's what he's getting at here. It's a pretty simple thing. And those common people who believe in him, I believe, can see it. It says they love what they were hearing, right? They heard it gladly. They knew what he was saying to these folks. They saw what they did. They saw the way they acted. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the signs, right? They believe. I mean, they got brains. They know it's coming from somewhere. They ain't never seen it happen before. It's got to be from God. One thing to keep in mind, what you keep in mind about Jesus was, you hear lots in the world about how compassionate he was, and he was. He loved to eat with the sinners, which was not a good thing in Israelites' eyes. He wanted everyone to come to be with him, but he did not hold back against those hypocrites who needed to be told. He did not mince words when things needed to be said. He did not hold back in talking about the resurrection of the living and the dead those who believe and those who don't. So we can have that wonderful promise to hold on to, that life, as Kurt was saying, that's going to happen eventually, even though we don't get that reward at this moment. We can live abundantly, though, and joyfully in this life because of that. I hope that's something you think about every day. I know we don't do it, but I hope you do in your prayer life and whatever you're doing. I hope you think about that glorious life that we're going to have one day. All right.
Hope you enjoy the holidays. Time's up. Thanks for being here.